Hello and welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. Today, director Matt Wolf discusses his documentary recorder, The Marion Stokes Project, with moderator Adrian Chen. This conversation was recorded at Landmark's New Art Theatre on the film's opening night. Thank you. Uh, let's give it up again for Matt and that amazing film. Really, really great. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh, I'm really happy to uh, moderate this Q&A with Matt, a friend and a colleague of mine. Um, having worked with Matt, I understand that archival footage is sort of a bigger part of his practice than even a lot of other documentary filmmakers. So I can kind of see why you were attracted to this film, you know, just from a conceptual level. But I guess I just wanted to ask how, how did you come across the story um, in the first place and, and make it happen? Yeah, I mean, I make films with lots of archival footage. And um, when the Internet Archive acquired Marianne's collection, um, there was an initial round of press, and I read about it in a blog post on Fast Company. And... Um, you know, the idea of this archive that could contain basically anything and everything um, that appealed, just the challenge of grappling with that appealed to me. So I tracked down Marianne's son, Michael, and um, I went to go meet him with my producer, Kyle Martin. And when we arrived at the Barclay apartment building, we were definitely surprised. It's one of the fanciest apartment buildings, I think, in, in a very Tony area of Philadelphia. And we went upstairs where Michael was living in Marion's former apartment, and there were hundreds of Macintosh computers in their original boxes. So that was also surprising. None of this had been reported, obviously. And, and um, Michael and Marion's personal s secretary, Frank, went across the street with us to the restaurant where Marion would have her daily martini. And as we started talking to them, they became emotional and were crying. And it became clear that this isn't just a story about this unprecedented archive. It's this emotionally intense family story as well. And the idea kind of was to interweave and intertwine those two things. Mm -hmm. So I wanted, to, I wanted to ask about you know, the, the family story because obviously it was a complicated, sort of difficult relationship on all sides. Um, how did you find the, the family in terms of approaching them? Were they reluctant? You know, why did they talk to you? Um, yeah, was it a painful experience for them? What, what was going on there? Um, they were really open to the process. I think, yes, they had a painful experience um, you know, living and dealing with Marion. I think there's an, an element of trauma in what happened to them. But um, I think when the internet acquired the collection and there was some press, it was, I think, startling and surprising to them, but also a little cathartic to know that all of the things that they had had to sacrifice, either with their relationship with their father, or Michael's kind of maddening relationship with his mother, um, that it wasn't in vain, that other people saw value and meaning in what she did. And I think, um, I think in a lot of ways that was a relief. And I, I was in Philly doing Q and A's with them last week, and um, Mizzy, one of, one of John's daughters, said that the film has been a healing experience for them. So um, they were very open to it, and I was surprised by that. Do you get any sense from them, like what she would have thought about the film and her side of the story? I guess. Yeah, it's it's always a dilemma. I've made films about several people who are deceased and can't really, you know, um, give their, you know, approval to do it. And Marion was obviously this very private um, and secretive person. Um, so in a lot of ways, the film was framed as a mystery. 
But at the end of her life, and what she did at the end of the day was newsworthy and historically significant. So I felt justified in, in doing that to bring her life's work to light. But um, at the end of her life, she said to Michael, um, who's going to tell my story? Which I think was a very surprising thing for him to hear from her. Um, but I think because she said that to him, it gave him a sense of um, conviction and confidence that this was an appropriate thing to do. It wasn't a violation of her privacy. Mm -hmm. um, and you were, you were telling me about, you know, sort of the challenge of accessing and working with the archive, like back when you were making the film. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what it was like to deal with so much material and how you went about, you know, picking those you know, there was so many like amazing moments and sort of unexpected ones and touching ones. And how did you find those? Um, well, we had to index the entire collection of 70,000 tapes. Um, and Marion, being a librarian, wrote uh, the metadata on the spines of these tapes by hand. The um, date, the time, the network, and sometimes other information like Oprah or Jesse Jackson or things that were stories that she had been tracking for decades. And so we created a conveyor belt at the Internet Archive and would take photographs from the top of all of the cardboard filing boxes that Marianne stored her tapes in. And then we put out a call for volunteers. And miraculously, over 50 people from around the, the world um, agreed to volunteer to log data from the spines of her tapes. And we used Dropbox and a, and a shared Google spreadsheet to do that. And then one volunteer kind of rose to the occasion and became a full-time archivist. Meanwhile, I was using Wikipedia, um, which has a summary of each year, and it's, it compiles things that are kind of epoch-defining big-ticket historical events and then weird marginal things, like anything from the collapse of the Berlin Wall to the collapse of the Miss America stage. And, um, you know, I was interested in both types of things, if not more interested in these more kind of forgotten idiosyncratic moments. And so um, I created a wish list, and the archivist would... Um, figure out on our Google spreadsheet of 70,000 items where that tape was. And someone at the Internet Archive would have to get a forklift and bring down the pallet and find the box and then get the tape, and we would bring that to a preservationist. And, you know, so Marion recorded an extended play, um, which means that each tape was six to eight hours long. And in the end, we only digitized 100 of 70,000 tapes, but that was 700 hours of footage, and I would scrub through it at 10 times speed, just hitting a marker anytime something was interesting. Uh, it was often what I was looking for, but other times it was just surprising stuff like Bruce Elliott, the anti-nostalgist. I mean, that's <laughs> not something you can really look for, but um, is you know my favorite clip from the archive that we we found. So um, you know, it was. Dealing with the archive was like making a film, uh, separate from the make, making a film. Yeah, I remember that Facebook post. It seemed interesting, but, you know, I had other <laughs> stuff going on. Sorry. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> well, you're lost. <laughs> Could have been in the credits, I guess. Um, <laughs> what, uh, yeah, and and so what is the status of the archive? Can people go online and see it now? Like, you showed that at the end. No, I mean, the Internet Archive has a huge task ahead of them. The intention is there, and they've they've pursued and done projects like this at this scale, but they need $2 million to do it. Um, and I think it's important to just remember that digitizing analog media is a real-time process. So I did digitized 100 tapes, which was 700 hours of real time. You can only imagine 
the amount of time it will take to do the full collection. But I mean, the Internet Archive, uh, people may not be familiar with the Wayback Machine. That's just one of their projects, and it's archiving the entirety of the Internet. And um, they really take on enormous monumental projects, and this is within the scope of what they do. Um, I don't know how much time we have, but maybe if anybody had questions in the audience, yeah. Uh, the question is, how come nobody was interested in Marion's story when she was alive? Marion didn't want her story to be known. She would have VHS tapes delivered in black plastic trash bags. So, um, you know, I, I think people perceive Marion as being um, an eccentric and a hoarder um, in a very particular, um, you know, kind of recluse. So um, I, I don't think... Marion is the type of person who did work that in its moment seemed to have the kind of coherence and conviction that in retrospect it does. Yeah, I think um, this person was reflecting on the, the kind of um, affinities between the founder of the Internet Archive and Marion Stokes. And yeah, they're both futurists. And it is remarkable that there's, there is this anti-institution institution out there, the Internet Archive, that really had the same um, spirit and philosophy is Marion, um, and and Marion was a futurist. She's someone who pursued a project in very low tech terms, but was very attuned to the the kind of um, possibilities of technology. And I think she, um, you know, did not obviously know that there could be a resource where the media she was creating could be used and experienced non-linearly online. But um, it's not surprising, given how much she forecasts you know, paradigms of the future that that such a thing does exist. And I think, um, you know, something else that you were kind of getting at in terms of her um, prescience is, um, you know, I, I think sometimes it's interesting to recall that this film was, um, I started making this film before Trump was elected. So the discourse around so-called fake news um, wasn't part of the conversation. And um, in so many ways, Marion's Marion's project and Marion's insights about you know ide ideologically biased news production influence influencing public opinion, um, you know, is is and recognizing the origin point of that at at the Iranian hostage crisis with the birth of the twenty four hour news cycle. I mean, she was very much tapped into um, you know the paradigm that's at the the kind of center of the political crisis of this current moment, and I think. Although our archive is is very focused on the past, I think there's a lot of meaning and knowledge in it that would be instructive about this moment and obviously moments in the future. The question is uh, why? You know, what was Marion's motivation for doing this, and what did she think would happen with it? And um, you know, that's a question that would come up when we were pitching pitching the film and developing the film. Is like, did she write in a diary? why she was doing it and how it would be used. And uh, no, uh, it's it's more complicated than that. I think, um, you know, after you watch the film, I'd be surprised if people don't feel a, a sense of confidence that she had, um, you know, a coherent vision that was infused with political conviction that compelled her to devote her life to a project that was, while monumental and life-consuming, very focused. And um, she did want that media and information to be accessible to other people, but the amount of effort and, and dedication it required just to pursue the project, I think, was all that she could handle. But um, I think what's important to note about the project is that 
and about Marion is that she wasn't someone who editorialized. She wasn't doing this project to watch tapes back and to create political interpretations based on her own interests or politics. Um, she was very focused, um, like an institution, in capturing everything. And she did that in, in a way that no formal or established institution saw value in. So she did it on her own terms. And there's an ideal, ideological agnosticism to that that I think um, characterizes all of her work is, is making a, a knowledge base accessible to everybody um, so that people can form their own opinions and, and have good information. Um, or at least understand the mechanisms of the systems that give people information that inform the decisions that they make. So, um, you know, people like Marion are not, I mean, she's obviously an, an incredibly complicated person. She's not someone who defines what she's doing. I mean, I've made films about other people like this. They, they don't, in the moment, define clearly what they're doing. They are consumed with some sort of project that is unresolved during their death um, and uh, other people make sense of that of that logic afterwards and and you know having shown the film many times now I think people they see that logic um, but it's not something that was graspable when she was alive yeah I mean I think one of the things that I really liked about the film was how you didn't put any like single motive, right? Like clearly she had these political convictions. She had this kind of futuristic, you know, dem democratizing through technology. She also probably had some sort of mental illness thing going on, hoarder stuff. And um, yeah, it seemed like there, there was no one way to bo boil her down. Yeah, and I mean, I perceive her as being radical. And um, I say radical, meaning that she's anti-institutional. She's a black woman of a certain generation pursuing a project that nobody saw value in. Of course, she's going to do, do it privately. She's going to find the means to do her life's work privately. And, um, you know, she invested in what other people found to be um, useless. Um, but that now, I, pretty universally, people are recognizing is there's, of course, tremendous value in all this media that was being kind of carelessly discarded for decades. Okay, we'll do one, one last one back there. Um, the question is about Marion's, the economics of Marion's life. She, she was a working class single mother, and then she met John Stokes, uh, hosting input, as you saw in the film, and he's from like a patrician old money family in Philadelphia, and, and they married, and that obviously changed her circumstances, but Marion was a self-trained stock investor, and, and her investments in Apple, as well as other stocks, significantly enhanced their wealth, um, and she also, um, you know, invested in real estate. She had nine homes, so she had a ton of assets. She was a savvy kind of investor and there was a foundation of family money and um, she she was fabulously wealthy. Not bad for a communist, huh? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting tension in it is it's like you have this communist who becomes like uh, evangelical to the, um, you know, to the most neoliberal corporation. It's But that's what I'm saying is she doesn't, there's no one ideology. It's kind of, there's this bigger mission at play. I think there's one. Oh, is there another one? One last. Yeah. Well, the question, you know, the reflection was on how digital technology outmoded people's kind of ability to 
create their own archives in the way that Marianne did. And I think, um, you know, people always are kind of, this, it's funny, Marianne never used the internet because she believed that internet technology would be used to spy on people, which is, is paranoid, but also true, um, which is, I think, the magical combination of everything with her. And, um, you know, I think, um, I think she was very much interested in the democratization of technology as a means to empower people, and I'm sure she was, well, she wasn't cognizant of Black Lives Matter. That was too late for her. It's more like, um, which, when was the Arab Spring? What year was the Arab Spring? Uh, I don't know, 2012 or something? 2000, I mean, she saw the Arab Spring. I think there was this belief that technology um, could democratize, be a democratizing force, but that I think as we've seen, there's a lot of people who have a kind of investment and interest in how the internet is gonna you know, empower social movements, but that we, the political condition of today is a result of television news, and people say TV is over, and nobody watches TV, but um, it's so clear that um, television news and ideolo ideologically slanted cable news channels is, are shaping the, the politics and society of today. So it's interesting how, um, you know, regardless of how the internet transformed the media that um, it's always helpful to remember that news seems to have this persuasive and pervasive effect that isn't going away. Um, so I'll leave it at that, but um, thank you for staying and this is the kind of movie that you know people need to hear about from other people. So please uh, tell people to come, it's playing all week. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theatres, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheatres.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time.